This is my will, my one command, that love should dwell among you all. This is my will that you should love as I have shown that I love you. No greater love can any have than that one die to save his friends. You are my friends if you obey what I command that you should do. I call you now, no longer slaves, no slave knows all the master does. I call you friends for all I hear my father say. You... In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My dear friends in Christ, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Have you heard of this? I know, it's, it's a mouthful. Moralistic, therapeutic deism is a phrase that was coined and back in the early 2000s, after a national survey and study was conducted, in order to get a better handle on and to summarize the religious beliefs of American teenagers. Now, I don't necessarily know that anyone paid much attention to them at the time. I mean, who puts a whole lot of stock into what teenagers believe? Well, 20 years later, and those teenagers have grown up. And a recent study that was just released last week has determined that those teenagers have kept and held on to those beliefs, which now means that moralistic therapeutic deism is the most popular worldview in America. That almost an estimated 40% of Americans view the world through this lens. So what is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, if you break each of those words down, it actually becomes pretty simple. This worldview is moralistic. It's about morality. It's about being a good person who does good things. Okay, that's fine. It's therapeutic. Doing those good things will make you feel good about yourself. That typically also happens. Finally, it is about deism. Doing those good things will make you feel good about yourself in relation to deism, to God. But you see, deism, as opposed to theism, implies a completely impersonal God. A God who is largely absent from the world. He has no real connection to or relationship with people, and he only shows up if it's an absolute emergency, and he is the last resort. And because this deos, this God, whoever he is or whatever it is, is so far off and so distant that this worldview then actually becomes your God. This becomes the ultimate goal. This becomes the ultimate guide. This is the highest good and purpose in your life. To be a good person who does good things so that you can feel good about yourself. 
moralistic, therapeutic deism says that this is the purpose of this life. And it is the hope of getting to whatever afterlife you choose to believe in. If you were a teenager in or around the year 2000, or if you, you had a child, a grandchild who was, the, better, the chances are better that this is what they believe than anything else. Now, why am I bringing this up? If that's what people want to believe, so be it. Well, the reason I bring it up is because 75% of those who identify with this worldview also claim to be Christians. And that's a problem. The question is, how? Not how could someone believe in moralistic therapeutic deism, but how can someone have this worldview also claim that he or she is a Christian? Well, I, I think our gospel reading from John 15 provides us with an excellent example how. If I were to ask you to, to summarize what Jesus says in those, those verses from John chapter 15, how would you summarize it? What is Jesus really saying? That's pretty easy, isn't it? It's all about love, man. Jesus just wants us to love one another and, and everybody to get along and do nice things, which will bring us joy, right? Jesus has that word somewhere in that text, wants us to be happy and, and doing those good things and, and being happy. Well, Jesus then calls us his friends. It means we're good with God. So we do good things. We feel good about ourselves. We're happy. We're good with God. Boom! Moralistic, therapeutic deism. But is that really what Jesus is saying? No. Not even close, actually. But it is an excellent example of what you can do with Scripture when you pluck a few words or maybe an entire verse out of the context that it is in in Scripture so that you can make it fit and support whatever it is you've already determined to be true in your mind. Jesus speaks these words to his disciples on Monday, Thursday evening in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, which means that in just a matter of hours, Jesus will be arrested, put on trial, beaten, stripped, flogged, and nailed to a cross. But before he does that, Jesus gives his disciples one final encouragement. Love each other as I have loved you. You see, the whole point and purpose of this text is to highlight and emphasize the love of Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the love of Christ? Is it simply this idea that in order to get along, you just kind of need to go along? That in order to love everyone, you just sort of need to live and let others live? In other words, to love is to not judge. Well, that's how the world views love today, for the most part, anyway. If you really love someone, you will not judge anything they say or do. Now, you can do that or, or not do that, and you can call it love, but don't you dare call it the love of Christ. 
Because Jesus judged people all the time. He called people hypocrites to their faces. He called people whitewashed tombs, meaning they worked so hard to look so good and moral on the outside, and yet inwardly they were nothing but a dying or a pile of dead bones. Jesus called people out when they rejected him as being the way, the truth, and the life. He called people to repent, to leave their life of sin. Jesus never hesitated, in other words, to call a sin, sin. And then, and then he went and died on the cross and suffered the punishment of hell for all of those sins and all of those people he knew to be sinners. Because you see, this is what you need to understand when it comes to the love of Jesus. What does it mean to love each other the way that Jesus loves you? Well, first of all, it means that you love someone so much that you are willing to say or do whatever is necessary, whatever is most beneficial for that person, for the object of your love, rather than saying or doing what is most beneficial for yourself. For example, my children come up to me constantly throughout the day asking if they can have candy or a snack or a treat or a cookie. And the loving thing to say to them is... Sure, go ahead, eat whatever you want, because I don't want to say no and run the risk of them thinking that I don't love them. No. No, that would be the easy thing to say. That would be the most beneficial thing for me to say. But the loving thing to say to them is no, it's not healthy. It's not good for you to constantly be eating and constantly be eating garbage. Go have a piece of fruit, or better yet, just wait until dinner. That's the loving thing to say. Even if it means that for a while, my kids are probably going to hate me. The love of Christ means that you are willing to sacrifice everything that you have and everything that you are for the good of another. The love of Christ is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's unconditional. Because the goal and purpose of the love of Christ is not going along to get along. The purpose and love of Christ is always, always the forgiveness of sins. Not to excuse sin or to overlook sin, but to forgive sin. That's the love of Christ. Love that he now says, go and love each other like that. So why is that so hard? And it is hard. Why is it such a tall order to love like Christ? Well, first of all, I don't want to love someone by calling out their sin because honestly, that almost always leads to a very uncomfortable situation between me and that person. And to be honest with you, they probably know me well enough that they know I got skeletons in my own closet and I don't want them to start throwing my sins back in my face. So better, easier, if we all just stay quiet. And you can, and it is easier, but it's not love. 
I don't want to forgive the person who hurt me. Because that would be like telling them that it was okay, that it was no big deal. So instead, I hold a grudge, I grow bitter, and I might even look for an opportunity or two to get even with them. Because the name of the game is self-preservation. Maybe. But self-preservation ain't love. I don't want to love the person who's stubborn and never seems to get it or reciprocate my love because honestly, it's exhausting. It's self-draining because I only have so much to give and everything I give to someone else, whether it's my time or energy or money or attention, what that means is there's less left over for myself. So what's wrong with a little self-love? Did you catch it? In all of those examples, what gets in the way of me loving the way that Jesus loves? It's me. I get in the way. I mean, how on earth can Jesus ask us to love everyone else when we're so utterly and completely in love with ourselves? How can he ask? Because Jesus understands that he only asks you to give to another what he himself has already given to you. Jesus can ask me to call a sin a sin and to call a sinner a sinner because this is what God does for me in his word, through his law. Because Jesus knows this is the way that you prepare a heart to hear and receive and believe the love of Christ. Jesus can ask me to forgive those who don't deserve it because that's exactly what he did and what he does for me every single day. Which means I can love recklessly even because self-preservation is not my job. I mean, Jesus himself says, who of you can add a single hour to your life by worrying about your life? Or in Psalm 121, It says, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forever. It sort of kind of sounds like preservation is God's job for your life. And that means that I can do the exhausting work of loving and forgiving stubborn people. Because I know that Jesus never grows tired of loving and forgiving me. Do you see why Jesus stresses why it's so important to remain in his love? Because Jesus knows you can only give from what you have been given. Connected to Christ by faith, you receive his love, the daily forgiveness of sins. Love and forgiveness that you then can freely, selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally give to those around you. And to love like that, Jesus says, it actually is not exhausting. It brings you the greatest joy you can have. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I have told you all of this so that you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so just as we did with the love of Christ, we need to ask, well, what is the joy of Christ? What is it that brought Jesus joy? What is it that made him so exceedingly happy? And Jesus tells us throughout the Gospels, 
He says, I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. What brought Jesus joy was to bring joy to his Father. To do and fulfill everything for which the Father had sent him. And now, Jesus says, connected to me, grafted into the vine, reborn in the image of God, I have put my joy inside you so that your joy may be complete. And when we hear that word complete, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's tempting to think of something ending, like it's over. But Jesus is not saying, I have come to put an end to all of your joy, like he's some sort of divine bummer. No, that word translated complete actually means to be full of something, to reach a limit. Jesus is saying, if you want to be full of joy, to experience maximum happiness in this life, if you want to know if you want to know what it means and looks like to have a joyful and happy life, it is to be and to do what you were created to be and do. Similar to what I mentioned last week with that car that really wanted to be a boat. Perhaps the car even thought it would be happier as a boat. But as soon as it drove itself into the lake and started to sink, all hope for happiness was gone. No, despite what it thought or what it wanted, a car is built to drive on the open road, to remain dry and on land, to have gravel and dirt beneath its tires. That is its purpose and where it will find true joy. And Jesus says, so it is with you. You were created by God to receive the love and forgiveness of Christ and then to share it with everyone around you. That's your purpose. And only in fulfilling that purpose will you ever be truly joyful. You see that from people, don't you? When they reference having a God hole in their life. They don't necessarily mean they're actually missing God. It's become kind of an expression or a a figure of speech to, to communicate an emptiness that someone is experiencing in their life that they just can't seem to fulfill. But the reason they can't fill it is because it really is a God hole. You can try to fill it with money and career and success, but nothing will perfectly and completely fill that emptiness except God. One of my favorite ancient Christian church father quotes is from St. Augustine, who said, Our hearts are restless, O God until they find rest in you. And and, and here we could say, our hearts are are empty, O God. They are without joy until they are filled with the joy of knowing the love of Christ. Jesus pours his love, his joy, his perfect obedience of obeying the Father's will into your heart and connected to him by faith, Jesus does not stop pouring Until like a cup, it overflows from your life into the lives of others as you love and serve and forgive them. Now all of this might sound fine and good even, but I'd be willing to bet that some of you are still asking the question, how? How do we love like Jesus? Well, that's really what Jesus concludes with in the final verses of this text. 
Have you ever done something so nice for someone you care about that, that people maybe looked at it and thought that it was strange, maybe even a little borderline crazy? Like you, you, you dropped everything and you drove all the way across the country to meet up with your college roommate. Or maybe you took a week off from work, not to go on vacation, but to help someone you loved in need. Or you see this oftentimes with like war veterans. When, when uh, a soldier comes home and commits to taking care of the family of a fellow soldier who didn't make it home. And when people look at you in that situation and they say, why would you do that? What's the answer? Because he's my friend. Because she's my friend. And that's what friends do for each other. And when that is the answer, no other explanation is needed. We get, we understand the love of friendship. And I think we underutilize that answer when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't have a problem calling Jesus my Lord, my Savior, my, my, my King, my Redeemer, my resurrection and my life, but my friend... It just seems like it's a slight to Jesus. It seems like it's a lesser title than all those other ones. I think back to all the times when, when I was a kid, and, and those other kids that I, that I grew up with, they would ask me, why, why do you go to church? Or later on, why are you studying to be a pastor? Or when I would say no to going with the crowd who was up to no good, when they would ask me, why did you do that? I think about all the missed opportunities when I answered that question by saying, well, because the Bible says, or because my God commands, or because my church teaches. I'm not saying that any of those answers are wrong necessarily. But how much more beautiful would it have been to say, why? Well, because Jesus is my friend. And that's what friends do. You love like Jesus by remembering who you are. I no longer call you servants, Jesus says, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. A servant does what he's told because the master-servant relationship is purely command-driven. If you were to ask a servant, why'd you do that? The only answer he can give is because I was told to. But a friendship is love-driven. A friend doesn't have to ask. Because you know your friend. You know their wants and their needs. You know everything about them. You do what you do for them because they are your friend. Jesus says, I call you friends because I have told you everything about me and my Father. You know what pleases God. Love one another. Dear friends of Jesus, isn't that just so much more beautiful, more fulfilling than moralistic, therapeutic deism? You don't have to do good things in order to feel good about yourself in the hopes that eventually one day some far-off God you know nothing about will hopefully, maybe, potentially 
call you good enough. No. No, the God of heaven and earth, your Savior and Redeemer, has chosen you to be his friend. He has opened the scriptures to you. He has opened your heart and mind to believe them. He has filled your soul with the lasting joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven and you are absolutely loved by God. The blood of the one who laid down his life for his friends says so. And with that love, the love of Jesus planted in your heart, with that love completely covering your life, with that love sanctifying your soul, Jesus now says, love one another. God grant it. Amen.